Hallelujah. Well, you know, folks, sometimes the devil likes to remind you of your past. The next time he does that, you remind him of his future. Always helps to keep things into perspective. The Apostle Paul was one, of course, who traveled to many, many different places and churches. Everywhere he went, he tried to leave an imprint of the gospel and a group of people that were committed to the message of Jesus Jesus Christ. One of the towns he visited we now have still existent in a little small village, a relatively small village in Greece by the name of Thessaloniki. You have it in your Bibles as Thessalonians. He visited there and he started a church there and he wrote them at least two letters and maybe more, but we only have a record of two of them. In 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter, he gives them this commendation. He said, I rejoice whenever I think about you because I know that when I came to you and preached the word, you heard it as the word of God and not as the word of man. And it will take effect in your life if you believe what it says. That's my hope this morning that somehow or another, with God's help, I might be able to speak to someone, some of you here, the word of God. I have no desire to tell you what I think or I know because I do not know very much. Someone mentioned to me numbers of years ago and it helped me get a perspective that I had never had before. They said if you were to talk to God for hours and hours and hours, you will never tell God anything he doesn't already know. But if you'll be quiet and listen for 30 seconds, he might tell you something that no one else has ever heard before in the history of the world. That's a pretty radical concept. I kind of like to see that happen in a couple people's lives today. But it probably will not be, and that's okay what I say to you. Numbers of times in my life, I've had uh, people come up to me after a service and uh, very kindly thank me for something I said and said it ministered to them and it helped them or whatever. A couple of those times I would speak to my wife or others and I would say, did I say such and such and so and so? They say, no, I don't think so. A couple of times I even went and got the tape and I listened to it. You know what I found out? I never said what they heard, but it helped them. That tells me God is here. And if you hear from God, that's far better than hearing what a preacher has to say. Just hear what God has to say. I love all reading the scripture, pondering the scripture, and answer, asking the scripture questions that I have to honestly say many people think are weird. But that's how I learn. There's a story in the New Testament. If you have your Bibles, open with me, please. I'm going to go to Mark. I could go to Luke. I could go to John, or Matthew, excuse me. It's in all three Gospels. In Mark, the second chapter, we have a story, and it begins like this in the first verse. And again he entered Capernaum, or Capernaum, after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. First of all, let me remind you that Capernaum was his adopted town. It was most likely the home village of some who were followers or disciples of Jesus Christ, or apostolae, or apostles of Christ. So it was one town that we have reason to believe he frequented. He would come back and he would visit and he would minister. Apparently this was a a while after Jesus began his ministry because he'd already developed a reputation. Some would say he was famous. And when he showed up, he went to this home. 
We don't know how big a home it was. If you have, uh, I don't know if any of you have had the privilege, as Janie and I have a couple of times, uh, to visit Capernaum in Israel, you will, they will take you to the town, to the village, 2,000 years old. And they've uncovered the foundations, and you can see the outline of some of the homes and things such as that. It was a relatively small village, but a village of some significance in Galilee. Jesus visited there, and he made his way to a home. And word got out that he was there. We know a couple of things about the crowd. Number one, we know the crowd was so large they couldn't all get into the house. There were people gathered around outside. Second, we know that some of the people that came were religious leaders. Uh, The word that's used in Mark is scribes. Now, scribes were New Testament Judeo lawyers. They were the ones that were there to interpret the laws of Israel. They were the ones you would go to and with a question regarding, what does this mean? And they were not only knowledgeable in regards to the Torah, they were also in rega- knowledgeable in regards to the Mishnah and the Midrash that was evolving and developing during that day, which was the oral tradition being placed into writing that told them how they were to carry out the laws of Israel. These people were experts at the law, and they had showed up to hear what Jesus had to say. They wanted to find out whether he was a hypocrite, whether he was someone that was a heretic, whether he was speaking the words of Israel or whether he was speaking the words of some pagan god. And they were there to listen. And Jesus knew it. They were good friends with the Pharisees, not the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the largest religious party of Israel. They were the ones who were believers in the angels and spirits and life after death. The Sadducees were not, and as you probably have been told, if you haven't, uh, the Sadducees did not believe in life after death. They didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in hell. They didn't believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. So they were sad, you see. Got that? Jesus shows up. Word gets out. Crowd comes in. So big people couldn't get in the door. They were busting out the seams. You have probably heard several times someone preach, as I have done, on the wonderful friends this one man who was a paralytic had. Now you need to understand they were not living in the 20th century. They had no hope of a cure. I'm I'm fascinated as I get older. I heard just this last week. I'm very encouraged. I want to encourage some of you. I heard this last week that within the next 10 to 20 years, they're going to have a cure for obesity in the United States, which means there'll be no more fat people like me. I find that to be very encouraging. It'll probably be found the day after they bury me, but that'll be okay. (laughs) I also heard this week that we believe now, scientists believe that they have already found a cure for sickle cell anemia in America, in the world. And there are several other diseases that they say we're right on the verge of. You need to understand this man had no hope of a cure. There were no medical people working in Atlanta, Georgia, no people working at Johns Hopkins, no people working the Cleveland Clinic or the University Hospitals to find a cure for what was wrong with him. But he had faith, apparently, or at least his friends did, enough that they showed up because they had heard that this traveling evangelist, was what we would call him today, he was an itinerant rabbi or rabboni of Israel, a teacher. There they were, the teachers of the law, the ones who held the standard They were there in a certain sense, though maybe not officially, but also pretty famously there to evaluate what Jesus said. Jesus knew of their presence. 
And here comes this man down through the roof. Now I've heard it preached, and it could be preached rather dramatically, how they were so faithfully and wonderfully as their friend tore the roof up and let the man through. Isn't it a wonderful story? Except if you own the house. But here comes this man down in front of Jesus. Everybody's watching. Jesus looks at him, and it's like he didn't even notice the man. It's like he didn't see what the, anybody, you, I, all of us here this morning, without exception, we could immediately see what the problem was. This man was crippled, paralyzed, incapable of walking, no hope. He would, if he did not have a family of some wherewithal, I don't know whether he did or did not, he would have been the one that you would have found outside of the gate beautiful begging which was considered to be an honorable thing to do. That's how, that was their welfare of their day. He stood outside, or excuse me, he lay outside of the gate asking for someone to give him something. And the Jewish people were taught, you should stop and give someone that, that which you have ability to give them every time. That's part of your Jewishness, to always be giving to the less fortunate. It still holds true today. But here he is, laying there on the floor. His friends were up top looking down, probably wondering what's going to happen. And it's like Jesus didn't even see his situation. He looked at him and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your son's sins are forgiven. The man didn't want his sins forgiven. He wanted his legs healed. But Jesus didn't speak that primarily for that man. He spoke that to someone else. He spoke that to the, to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but most particularly he spoke that to the scribes. He wanted them to hear truth. Truth. There are numbers of us here this morning who have diseases and physical ailments, some of them more serious than others. There have been many of us that are here this morning, I assume in the past, that we have been told we have cancer. Some in this room today have been told that, I'm sure. And what we long for is that time when the doctor will look at us and say, I don't need to see you for six months or a year, as far as I can tell, you're cured. When we go to the doctor and we hear that diagnosis that's extremely serious, the next thing we want to know, can you, can you cure it? Sometimes the doctor will recommend we go to someone else and that doctor will evaluate our test and probably require more. Have you noticed how doctors don't trust other doctors' tests? They want to take their own? I think it's a financial thing, but I won't go there. And they tell you this is what the diagnosis is. Then they tell you how they're going to treat it. But ultimately what we want to know is can you cure it? Sometimes they'll say to us, well, I want you to know it's not curable. It's not that we can cure it, but we can treat it. And then we want to hear these next words. And if, you, if the treatment goes as we think it will, and we have every reason to believe it will, you will be able to lead a completely normal life, and what you have will not kill you. It will not end up in your demise. And we are encouraged. Jesus knew that this man would never hear those words that you're cured except if it came from him. So he looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven. And the text says originally, or immediately, the scribes began to have a hissy fit. It's not in the Bible that way, but that's what they did. Who do you think you are? The word that is used there is blasphemeo in the Greek. And, and I don't know a lot of Greek, but I know a little bit. And blasphemeo is that word that we translate into blaspheme. 
Unfortunately, when we translate it, we don't even know what it means. But blaspheme in the original text means attributing the actions or attitudes or some other attribute of one individual to another individual. Like when you were a child and your siblings did something, you didn't do it, and they tried to blame you, or the reversed. They said to Jesus, you are a blasphemer because you are assuming that which you do not have the authority to do. You are forgiving sins. And the only one that can forgive sins is God. They were 50% right. They were totally right that he was assuming the responsibility of God. They were totally wrong when they said you're a blasphemer because he was God. But most people don't get that message in this whole text. They, they like to hear about the fact that this man left out of the house and he went out amongst the people according to the text in Matthew and Luke and Mark as well. And then eventually he made his way home. I want to mention to you this morning some very important assets about this whole scenario. Number one, Jesus surveyed the crowd and he recognized the need. Jesus surveys our crowd this morning. What do you need? Not only what do you want, what do you need? We are oftentimes very prone in the direction of asking for what we want in our prayers. And sometimes when we're conscientious, we might say, Lord, and give me according to my need. We, we have the prayer that the Lord gave us that we have improperly given the title of the Lord's Prayer. It's not the Lord's Prayer, it's our prayer. When the Lord prayed, he prayed that we might be sanctified holy and that we might be one even as the Father's one. But when he told us to pray, he said, ask that my Father's will as it is being done in heaven will be done on this earth through you. So we come to the Lord oftentimes with our litany of things. Lord, I'd like to have this, I'd like to have that, I'd like the other. And yet sometimes we just need to say, Lord God, what do I need? I do not know, but I'm going to assume based upon the context of this passage that this paralytic had thought about this, and he had recognized the reality that all of us here this morning have probably recognized, though we may not have talked about it very much nor confessed it openly, and that is that we are sinners. Sin is a very dark thing in our world. It ruins relationships. It absolutely tears apart families. And sometimes it even makes individuals incapable of a good night's rest. Sin will sometimes awaken us much more to our disdain than would pain because there's no cure for it, we think. It's guilt on steroids. It's that inability to cope with that which we cannot control. It's that which rises up within us when we don't want it there and it tends to bite other people. We don't know what to do about it. If you come to that place this morning, you are, I think, where that paralytic was. Everyone was aware of his paralysis Everyone was aware that he'd been let down through the roof. Everyone was aware that he had some good friends. But not everybody was aware of what that man was aware of. And that was that he needed a Savior. He needed to be forgiven of his sins. So do we all. So do we all. You know the good thing about Sakat, who was the St. Patrick, as we call him now, is when he came into Ireland, Ireland had heard the gospel before, according to history. It had been preached there. He didn't get there to the 400s. 
And there he began to preach the word to them, but conversions began to happen. By, by large numbers, people were saved. Now this was back when the church was in its beginning. It wasn't the Catholic church or the Protestant church, the Roman church, the Greek church, the Russian church, the Coptic church. It was the church. And he wasn't a Roman priest. He wasn't a Catholic priest. He was a preacher of the gospel. They even called him a bishop. But much of his honor and much of his, his renown came about after he was dead. When he came to Ireland, he just preached Jesus Christ crucified, rose from the dead, coming again for your sins. And thousands of people would convert him. It's a marvelous thing. We've experienced that in the United States at least twice. It's been called the Great Awakening. It happened up through New England when a great revival started under the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, I've read some of his sermons. They're quite boring in my opinion. I, I, I'm sure it would have been different if you could have heard him, but I've also read after those who sat in his church and they said he was like a monotone. He didn't have much emphases, but he read basically his sermons and people at, point, at some point in the beginning were bored by them. But when the revival took place, an anointing came upon Jonathan Edwards and he would be preaching in the service and people would stand up to come to the altar and fall down under the power of God right in the middle of the church. Thousands of people got saved. Beer joints shut down. Play places of, of, of retail wouldn't open on the Lord's Day. God did a miracle. If you've ever been a part of that, you understand what I mean when I say it was transformative. That happened in Ireland. It's happened at times in the United States. Do you think it could happen in Ohio? There have been those in Ohio, such as Finney, that that has happened to, where revival took place. As a young man, I had opportunity to be a part of a revival that we started in our local church, and, and it went on for almost a year. We pre I preached every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for a year in different places. I, I knew something unusual was happening when a prominent man in my community, I knew him quite well. He was an older man, and he was a rich man, and he was an influential man, and I always called him Mr. Hubert. His wife was my school teacher, Miss May. She taught me sixth grade. I never remember. Miss May weighed about 350 when she was dry, and she was quite intimidating to a sixth grader. I remember one day in class I was not behaving quite properly. Miss May got up and walked and wobbled back to my desk. And she looked at me and she said, Dale, if you don't shut up, I'm going to sit right on top of you. I didn't say another word the rest of the day. <laughs> Scared the frog out of me. Mr. Hewitt was a rich man. He owned the local store. He had plenty of money. His father before him had money. And everybody around the community talked about Mr. Hubert and how rich he was. He ran his store from 6 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night every day of the week except Sunday. He would not open on Sunday but he never missed a day. The day they buried his daddy, I remember this because I was a child and I was impressionable and everybody talked about it. He kept the store open till noon, went to his daddy's funeral and came back that night. Revival came about and someone came up to me at church one night and said, Hubert's here. I said, Mr. Hubert from the store? Yeah. And from that night on, while we had revival, at six o'clock he put a sign out on his door, store closed, gone to revival, see you there. You knew revival had happened. It transforms lives. Transform Mr. Hubert's life. It'll transform your life. It's not just religion. It's not going to church. It's that maybe, but it's a lot more than that. Jesus looked at that man and said, your sins are forgiven. Have you ever heard that? Really heard it? You see, sometimes it's hard for us to accept According to all that we know sociologically in America and psychologically, when people are, are guilty of, a, of an offense against someone else, they find it upon occasion quite difficult to accept forgiveness. I've had opportunity down through my life to deal with numbers of people who had been wronged and who were the ones who were wronged. 
and who did the wrongdoing. Many, sometimes it would be a husband and wife situation. Sometimes it would be a father, daughter, son, mother, brothers, whatever. I, I remember being in a church preaching revival in North Carolina with a friend of mine. And I just reacquainted myself with him about a month and a half ago down in Florida. I went to his church and preached revival. He had two brothers in the church. It was a pretty good-sized church, about 200 people. These two brothers were both businessmen in the community, very prominent leaders in the church. One sat over here, one sat over there. And they would not speak to each other. They were both on the board of the church. They were leaders in the church. And my good friend, he, he kind of had to play politics. He didn't want to offend either one of them. And that's not my bag, so I offended both of them. I didn't hesitate one bit in the world. I, I went to one of them, I said, I understand that you don't talk to your brother. He said, oh, I said, I don't want to hear it. You ought to be ashamed of yourself to even call yourself a Christian. Well, who made you God? I said, I'm not God. I just came here to preach, and I think you ought to know it. If you're a Christian, you ought to be talking to your brother. That just makes sense to me. It still does. And I got a lot of people who won't talk to me, but I'm going to talk to them until Jesus comes. And then when Jesus comes, I'll say hi to them in the air. I hope they're on side of me. I really do. You have to realize it's hard to forgive some people. It's even harder when you're forgiven. You see, I, I've been there when husbands and or wives had told the other one that they had been unfaithful. Tears begin to stream, shape, body begins to shake, and ultimately the injured party looks at them and says, I, I forgive you. And that person says back, thank you so much, but I'll never forgive myself. And that's a problem. You see, because... If God forgives you, you have a religious, spiritual obligation to forgive yourself. Have you ever hurt someone and they forgave you, but you've never forgiven yourself? Jesus looked at this man and gave him a profound announcement. He said to him, your cancer is gone. There will be no return. You are forgiven. I was brought up in the tradition of infant baptism in my church, I was Methodist, I, I remember, and I've seen pictures when I was younger, I don't I hope there's not any around anymore, where my mother put me in a little white dress and carried me to church so I could be baptized. That had been a pretty sight, wouldn't it, me in a dress? But anyway, that's the tradition. You know, you dress everybody. Little boys dress in white dresses. You know, just dumbest look. And they took me to church, and they put a little water on my head. I'm sure I cried. And oh, isn't he cute? It's the last time I was cute, I'm sure. Were you baptized as a child, baptized as an infant? What does that say? That said nothing about you. Really, truly, it did not. It's said by your parents theologically, ecclesiologically, depending on their church. It said, we are Christians, and we want our child to be a Christian. But if you have not been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ, you've missed a wonderful opportunity to tell people who you are, who you belong to. I'm proud of certain things in my life. I am proud. I'm not going to back down from the fact I'm an American. I'm a little bit boisterous about it. As far as I'm concerned, if you don't like it in America, go somewhere else. Don't come here and try to change us. I admit, I've got I'm bigoted. If you don't want to learn to speak English, then go where they speak whatever you want to speak, but leave us alone. I'm bigoted when it comes to that. I'm proud to be an American. I'm also proud to be a Southerner. Amen. Bless God. Hallelujah but I'm most proud to be a Christian. You see, because I remember real clearly, and I never want to forget the night in my Methodist church under a Baptist preacher, I made my way down the aisle and knelt at an altar right over on that side. And I was converted. 
I knew the Lord had done a work in my life, but I wasn't sure how much because I needed converting. I was pretty bad. And I didn't know one thing from another. You see, I had, like some of you have had, bad background. My mother and father fought all of my life that I could remember. My dad was a town drunk and my mother didn't have a real good reputation, I found out. And I remember the fight that they had one time when my dad was beating up on me and I got away from him and my father chased after me and my mother stabbed him with a butcher knife and severed part of his spinal cord. And I remember sitting in our living room several days later. I don't know all of what had gone down, but it was summertime and the doors were open and we lived right on a corner and I remember a car coming around the corner and I heard a woman's voice. I assumed she was speaking to her husband and she said, like, said it out loud, uh, that's the house where that boy lives that stabbed his dad last week. And I was thinking, I didn't do it. I'd have killed him if I'd done it. I wouldn't have missed. I hated my daddy. But God saved me. God changed me. It didn't happen overnight, but I can remember a year or so later being in church and preaching, and I looked, come right down this way over here. Dave, right about where you are, I saw my daddy coming, pulling that leg. Because he couldn't walk right anymore. And he came, knelt at the altar, he looked up at me and said, Dale, pray for me. Aren't you glad for Calvary this morning? I remember a couple of years after that, I don't know how long, time passes. When you're old as I am, time don't matter anymore. But I remember my mama called me. She said, Dale, your brother went to church last Sunday with her new husband. She was now remarried because my parents had divorced. And she said, he came home and told me he's now a Christian. He got saved. Wasn't too long after that, I called mama. I said, mama, when are you going to go to church? She said, I started going and I've accepted Christ. This morning, I assume my brother's preaching at his church down in Virginia. Aren't you glad for Calvary? Aren't you glad that that Jesus that we love and serve paid the price on Calvary and he is God incarnate and he looked at that paralytic and said, your sins are forgiven. And I believe when that man got out in the crowd and got on his way home, maybe even when he arrived home, he didn't hesitate to tell people, oh, what a difference. I met that rabbi down there today. He looked at me and he told me my sins were forgiven. Now he healed me. There are some of us here this morning. I, I know this. I'm not insensitive to this. You have a physiological problem. Whatever it might be, you've got problems. And you'd love to be healed. And I honestly would love for you to be healed. I wish everybody could get healed. And the time might come for some of us that we will be healed. But let me tell you what you and I both know. You might be healed. You might not be healed. But it doesn't make any difference. The day will come when I or Evan or somebody else is going to preach your funeral. And that healing will make no difference. But that statement by Jesus when he says to him, your sins are forgiven, will make all the difference in the world. Your sins are forgiven. And he walked out of that room. Everybody knew he'd been healed. Maybe some of them had never seen him walk before. What a, what a sight that must have been, watching this paralytic. Maybe he had thrown some poles up over on top of his shoulder because he'd been laying on a stretcher. Can you imagine? Can you think about it? I won't spend too much time on it, but it just is thrilling. What do you think those boys said then when they got off the roof? What do you think they did when they met out there in the front yard? They saw what happened through a little hole in the roof. Can you believe that? Jesus is talking about sin and our buddies down there can't walk because Jesus looked at those scribes and he said, what are you so mad about? 
I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not blaspheming. Which do you think would be easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk. But so that you might know that I have the power to forgive sin. I said to this man, your sins are forgiven. Now take up your bed and walk. And he got up and he took his bed and he put it on his shoulder. He walked outdoors and they had a celebration. Has there been a celebration over your forgiveness and transformation? Have you experienced that new birth in Jesus Christ? God willing, on the last Sunday of this month, we're going to have a baptismal service here. And Pastor Evans is going to be baptizing. I'm not, I think he's over here, isn't it? Baptismal, I think. Not water down there now, but it will be. Maria's got it covered up now with a black robe or something. But anyway, we're going to baptize people. If you haven't been baptized, now listen. If you come and you haven't been converted, you're going to come in here and be a dry sinner and walk out of there a wet sinner and nothing's going to change. But if you've been converted, you want to proclaim to your family and friends, so invite all of them to come. And you say, well, they're not believers in Jesus Christ. Well, thank God, that's the ones we want. They need to know Jesus. And you're going to come in and in one way or another, we're going to say to them, and as we've said to you, this person's sins are forgiven. And there are people in your family and my family, they know they're sinners. They know they need to be saved. Just like my daddy knew it. But he would never accept the forgiveness of God. I don't know why. Maybe it was his addiction to alcohol. And I prayed with him numbers of times. And I prayed with him with tears running down his cheeks. But he committed suicide and I did his funeral. But my mother accepted Christ and it transformed her life. And my brother accepted Christ and it transformed his life. And I've got other friends and family members that accepted Christ and it transformed their lives. But we go back to Thessalonians. And Paul said, I thank God every time I remember you that you heard the word that I spoke to you and you understood it to be a word from God and not from man and you believed it and that's changed your life. Have you been there? Have you done that? Have you experienced the transforming power of God? It's life-changing, but too many times I think in America today we cheapen the gospel. We just, we want a treatment, we don't want a cure. Matter of fact, people will argue with me about whether or not we can live in victory over sin. They say, oh, you can't do that. I do not understand, I, I, I have a bit of a theological background and I've tried to trace it historically, but I don't understand why the American public finds it so appealing that we can be saved, converted, transformed, whatever you want to call it, and then we are still sinners. Still sinning, still living in sin, still following the devil, but somehow or another, God's gotten blind. He doesn't see our sin anymore. Why don't we want to hear the radical truth of the gospel? Jesus Christ completely saves. As a young preacher, my, we had two churches, Jenny and I, and one of them, both of them in Virginia Beach. And one building that we had had a, had a back on it, and it was where the social hall was. They hadn't used it for like 10 years. And we wanted to turn it into Sunday school classes because we were growing and we needed the space. So I had a youth group going. So we went back there one Saturday and the walls all needed to be painted. It even had black mold on the walls. And so we, we painted the whole, I, I think I went to Kmart and got good paint. I'm sure it was good paint. Jeff, that probably wasn't worth five cents. But anyway, it was just colored water. But we painted every place and it looked so pretty. And it was, you know, it had that clean smell when we walked out Saturday night. And I came to church Sunday morning, you know, kind of thinking, everybody's going to like this. And I went to the back, 
right by the bathrooms where it was, I was painting. I painted the whole thing and it looked pretty good someplace. But up front near the bathrooms, would you believe it? There's black mold right where I painted yesterday. I mean, we painted that booger good. We gave it a good coat with roller. We rolled that thing up. And some of the, you know, I was like 19 then. And some of us old people can be hard on young people. And a couple of the old fellows came back there and began to snicker and laugh at me. You know, they like making fun of the young preachers. They say, you paint that preacher? <laughs> I said, yeah, we painted all day yesterday. <laughs> you see that black stuff there? Yeah. What'd you put on it? I said, I painted it. There's a paint bucket over there. We painted everything in this room. Everything looked good except right here. He said, you ought to paint it again. But it won't help. What are you talking about? It won't help because you got mold. I said, well, what do you do about mold? He said, you don't know, do you? I laughed at me. I want to smack him side the head in the name of Jesus. <laughs> no, he said, you're not going to get rid of that till you put Clorox on it. And they got a little bottle of Clorox. I believe at that time it was like 39 cents a gallon. And they put that stuff on that wall and said, now paint it all you want to because the mold is gone. I, that day God taught me something. I don't want God painting over top of my mold. I want him to use Clorox and take it away. Because after you get rid of the old black mold in your life, Jesus Christ can come over and paint it with holiness and righteousness and goodness and all the other things. Have you thought God just put water-based paint over top of your mildew and you're wondering, what's wrong with me? The mold keeps coming through the sin. You've never had it Cloroxed. Jesus didn't die on the cross to cover your sin. He died on the cross to take away your sin. And if you don't understand that, in my humble opinion, you missed the whole message. You're still talking about the paralytic. You're still talking about his numb legs. You're still talking about his friends up on the roof and how they tore the roof. That's a marvelous story. And everybody needs friends like that. And most of you have some friends like that. But let me tell you, the fact is, everybody needs a Savior like Jesus that looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven But if they're forgiven, you have to now exercise this issue and say, now I'm going to forgive myself. Don't enter into this cheap Christianity where you get a little bit of water-based paint put over top of your mildew and tomorrow you're the same person. Be changed. If anyone be in Jesus Christ, he's a brand new creation. Everything old has passed away. Behold, everything has become anew. That rich man by the name of Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, What must I do? And he said, You must be born again. What a radical thought. You know, probably 70% of Christianity today have never heard that concept, you must be born again. They think we evangelicals are just weird and it was made up by Billy Graham on a drunken bench somewhere. No. Jesus said, you must be born again. So what must I do? Can I go again into my mother's room? We won't go down that road very far. Jesus said, no, you must be born of the Spirit. Oh, he said, the Spirit, you feel it. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going, but you know the effect. That's what happens when Jesus passes by. You can't see the Spirit of God at this altar. You can't see him walk in this aisle, but you can see him when he touches life. And if you've never let him touch yours this morning, he will. And if you've let him touch yours, but you've never let him completely change you, he will. But you have to be totally surrendered. I'd like to close our service now. And whoever's going to come up here, Dan, buddy, and Dave, or whoever's coming. I want to close. I know what time it is. I smell the roast beef. I smelt it at the last church, didn't you, Joe? Yeah. They were eating it while I was riding down the road. But that's okay.
What we're going to do this next five minutes is more important than any meal you've ever eaten. And I'm not blowing smoke up your nose. Forget about what you're going to eat or what you're going to do for five more minutes. I'm going to open this altar up and ask you, have you ever surrendered all to Jesus Christ? Have you ever truly let him completely take away your sins? Have you heard him say to you and you have accepted his forgiveness? You are forgiven. The scribe said, you don't have that authority. That's blasphemy. Jesus said, yes, I do, because I am God. That's all I want you to know this morning. He has the authority. He has the authority. When the policeman says, I'm going to give you a warning, you can drive down the road rejoicing. When the governor says, I'm going to give you clemency, you can go back home. When the president says you're pardoned, you can have a great sense of relief. But Jesus, when he says you're forgiven, your life is radically transformed. Would you stand together, please? Father God, have your perfect will in this church, I pray. And may you be glorified. Speak to your people what you want them to hear. And we'll thank you for it. Amen.